You're listening to Strange New England. I'm your host, Tom Burby. Lord Timothy Dexter, the luckiest man ever to live in old New England. You might have met someone like him. An extremely lucky person. A character so unlikely to be successful because of a lack of wit, money, talent, education, or any combination as to be the poster boy for failure. And still, this person thrives and perseveres against all that the hand of fate has set against him. Perhaps in spite of it. Folks like this aren't as uncommon as it might seem. Perhaps they're all around us, and their success isn't as strange a thing as we might assume it to be. Such is the case with one of New England's most interesting and nearly forgotten characters, the highly unlikely successful man known to the world as Timothy Dexter. Born in Maiden, Massachusetts in 1748, Dexter didn't have the benefit of an education. By the time he was eight years old, he was working on a local farm until about the age of 16 when he apprenticed out to a leather dresser, coloring and preparing leather for working after the hides had been tanned. When he was 21, this unlikely young man made his lonely way to Newburyport, Massachusetts. Such was the simple fate of a simple man to gain enough training to make his way in the world, to put a roof over his head and food in his belly. He had no connections. He wasn't a gentleman. He was a simple workman with a trade and no hope of wealth. In pre-revolutionary America, people rarely rose above their station unless they were helped by very connected friends or if, and here the point is very clear, They are very, very lucky. Perhaps the first piece of luck that Dexter found was to marry well. Though he had little to offer her except his peculiar outlook upon the world and his great energy, the rich widow, Elizabeth Frothingham, married him. Together, they brought their first mansion, and he began to attempt to consort with the wealthy of Newburyport. We aren't sure what his contemporaries there thought of him, but it's safe to assume that it's likely this unlearned, unlettered young man was ignored, or perhaps given bad advice to discourage him from being uppity in their company, daring to rise above his station. After all, Timothy Dexter had no experience with the sycophantic and highly stylized banter that the wealthy of the colony employed as their common tongue. Dexter was a simple man, down to earth, who was more at home with the servants in his mansion than he was with his white-wigged visitors. Perhaps it was his unorthodox view of the world that helped Timothy Dexter beat the odds and rise far above the ranks of the wealthy of Newburyport. During the war, Dexter managed to hold on to his wife's fortune. And after the American Revolution commenced and British currency was difficult to procure, the Continental Congress issued its own script, known to the world as Continentals. The new currency ran from one-sixth of a dollar to an $80 bill. All told, the Continental Congress issued a total of over $240 million worth by the end of the war. 
During the war, the continental script became less and less valuable until a famous adage came into circulation that something wasn't worth a continental. With little gold to back up the paper, many didn't believe that this paper was worth the paper it was printed on. Except, perhaps, for people like Timothy Dexter. At war's end, Dexter did something few other patriotic rich men did at the time. He purchased large amounts of the worthless currency, trading his good money in for bad. Nearly everyone would have considered this a terrible financial move. As time passed, however, and the new American government began to gain solid ground financially, it made good on its promise to make the Continentals worth something to the people they had issued them to. Dexter profited from his purchase, and he made enough money then to build two of his own ships and thus begin his own export business to the West Indies and to Europe. Now, was this luck or was this skill? There is a saying that some still use. It goes something like this. Well, that's as silly as like shipping coal to Newcastle. Newcastle is a city in England that already has plenty of coal in abundance, and no one would actually send coal to a coal center to sell unless they were out of their minds. But Timothy Dexter did just that. We don't know if he was aware that there was a coal shortage in Newcastle because of a miners' strike. The time it took for a voyage to and from England to Newburyport was long, and a strike might well have been over by the time his ship arrived, but it wasn't, and Dexter shipped coal to Newcastle and made a good profit on the deal. When the first chain bridge over the Merrimack River was built, Timothy Dexter invented heavily in it. Many people at the time thought such a thing as a chain bridge was unlikely to last, and only a few investors were ever found. But the bridge was a success, and it offered Dexter a dividend of 25 cents on the dollar for every year that passed. Warming pans are heavy brass pans with covers on the end of long wooden poles that go under the mattress and keep those in the grip of a harsh New England winter rather cozy in their beds. Now, why anyone would ship a boatload of these warming pans to the West Indies, where it's hot already, requires a great deal of incredulity. But there was Timothy Dexter, who did just that. His competitors must have thought him a fool for such a venture. But Dexter laughed all the way to the bank when the molasses distillers purchased them and then took the pin out that held the two brass pans together and then made two excellent brass ladles out of each singular warming pan, getting two of them for the price of one. He followed this strange transaction up with a boatload of mittens that he sent to the West Indies, which were quickly purchased by merchants from Asia who had their own boats heading west to Siberia. Later, he would send a boatload of gloves to the South Sea Islands, arriving just in time to sell them to a cadre of Portuguese merchants headed for China and Japan. Other odd and unaccountable adventures ensued, and no matter what he set his lucky hands to, Timothy Dexter always rose wealthier and more successful than before, much to the chagrin of those who were bound and determined that one day this man's luck must surely run out. As a Newburyport merchant, he had connections with the huge American whaling industry, whose whale oil businesses kept the lights burning in most of America and Europe. 
What remained from these behemoths, after their fat was rendered, was bone, and a lot of it, particularly from baleen whales. Their mouths offered a veritable forest of thin, flexible bone used to filter water and contain the small fish and krill that the giants consumed. Dexter decided to purchase this excess of whalebone without knowing what he would do with it. Most of it was simply dumped into the sea, but Dexter was smart enough to warehouse it, spending a considerable sum to do so. Who could have known, then, that the vagaries of fashion would change, and the introduction of the ladies' corset would soon demand tons of this baleen whalebone to use in stiffening the garments to hold in the waistlines and squeeze the inner organs of so many fine American and European women? Well... Perhaps Timothy Dexter knew, because he sold all of his whalebone and then some. Perhaps Dexter will be most remembered for making a profit from the thousands of stray cats that he gathered from the New England cities and then shipped to South Sea Islands in his fleet to sell to islanders who were already suffering from rat infestations originally caused by visiting American and European vessels in the first place. He even anticipated the need for Bibles and made a good profit on the Word of God as meaningful missionaries in the West Indies frantically searched for multiple copies of the good book to lay into the hands of the newly baptized natives so that they might learn of the glory of the Lord. Timothy Dexter made that possible too. At a time when other merchants from his area spent their money investing in sure things, Dexter made his fortune by bucking trends and trying new things, taking great risks so that he could reap great rewards. Tensions among the elite of Newburyport grew, and he and his wife were ostracized from their company. Dexter tried to fit in, and perhaps that was his only piece of bad luck because it didn't work. He didn't go to the Presbyterian church. He didn't wear leather breeches. He remained a humble worker, a craftsman at best, who happened to marry well and whose unusual worldview and decision-making made him seem the fool when, in fact, he was wise. He purchased a mansion and attempted to live like the landed gentry, but no one came to his parties and he was not invited to theirs. His family life began to suffer even more because as a father and husband, though he was a good provider, he was a bad hand at romancing the neighbors. First, he told visitors, presumably not the wealthy ones, that his wife had died, and that was why she didn't come down to mingle. In fact, she was alive and well. Later, he faked his own death, and then those who loved him, admired him, or simply who wanted to make sure he was dead, came to his wake. Over 3,000 people showed up. Dexter continued to live and thrive. Eventually, he purchased another estate in New Hampshire away from those who despised him in good old Newburyport, and there at the age of 50, he wrote a book entitled a pickle for the knowing ones, or plain truth in a homespun dress. There was no punctuation in the book. What rules of grammar that many writers learned and used, Dexter did not know about, or perhaps he simply didn't care. In the book, he told the readers about problems with politicians, his issues with the church, and, of course, his dear non-dead wife. Even his attempt at publishing seemed likely to fail without any punctuation, but... Dexter was successful again. 
Though he began by simply giving his oddly non-punctuated book away to people, demand for it grew. People couldn't get enough of it. It was interesting. In his second edition, Dexter winks at the world by adding 13 lines to the original text, all periods, one right after the other. He told his readers to put the periods in where they liked. It was all the same to him. The book was reprinted eight more times. He wasn't a fool, obviously. He didn't care much for the opinions of others. Though others laughed at him and made him the butt of their joke, he had the last laugh. Timothy Dexter came to represent the kind of bold individual who rose from the lowest rank of American society to achieve greatness based upon nothing but his own decisions and foolhardy luck. He was a jester, the harlequin whose plain sense and odd idiosyncrasies set him apart from the old aristocracy and blazed a new path for the sons of more humble men to follow. Timothy Dexter remains one of the luckiest men from old New England. You've been listening to Strange New England. 